Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. So I want to start today's show with a quote from my very special guest and City Winery founder and so much more. We'll get to that. Michael Dorff's new book, which I consumed <laughs> like it was the best sea smoke Pinot I ever drank. <laughs> I know you'd appreciate that. Yes. Indulge your senses, scaling intimacy in a digital world. So here's the quote. And actually, I think it's from the book. It may be from the Washington Post review, but I love it anyway. Successful arts and entertainment ventures hinge entirely on creating self-contained experiences, whether found at places like Top Golf amusement centers or horror-themed escape rooms, it's all about figuring out how to create a sense of intimacy that makes you feel cared for, valued, and respected. Now, as I said, to be fair, I'm not sure. Is that that was from the book? It is in yeah, the book. Yeah. Okay, good, because it was also well, in the post review. Yeah, which was less clear. Yeah, but yeah. wow, I just I, when I when I read it originally yeah. in the book, I was like. That's something. Well, an honor to have you on the show, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we're going to circle back later to that quote a little bit. But in case you've been living under a rock since the late 1980s, let me tell you a little bit about Michael. He made his way from Milwaukee. And, you know, this seems to be a trend amongst my guests lately, like Rachel Tipograph from Micmac. She took all of her bat mitzvah money and, and started businesses. Apparently, Michael drained his bar mitzvah money and got his way to the Big Apple. I bought an electric organ and, and you know, I, I played it, but I, I kind of wish I had invested it in something. And he took a plunge not only into the music world, but was an early internet pioneer by webcasting the first live music stream from his first New York City baby, The Knitting Factory, which the New York Times called one of the most influential clubs of the 1990s. And then after combining his passion for music and winemaking, started City Winery in 2008. Manhattan's first fully functional winery. Think about that. Think about how many years Manhattan's been around, which now they're in D.C., recently Philadelphia, Chicago, Atlanta, Nashville, Boston. And as a side hustle, as millennials call it, Michael has been behind all of the incredible Carnegie Hall tribute concert series for the likes of Springsteen, which I'll never forget that night, Dylan and Joni Mitchell, to name a few, which has raised more than $1.5 million dollars to benefit music education programs. As I said, I was lucky enough to witness many of these, and they were really, really amazing nights. But now he adds author to his resume, although I thought you'd call the book Chutzpah. <laughs> so, Michael, I know you, like me, are a storyteller, so I would love if we could start the show letting people know you don't wake up one day, become a successful entrepreneur, and in your case, you spent a great deal of time for example, schlepping CDs to Europe just to pay for your rent. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the early days. Sure. I mean, look at the most fundamental component of, of the early, early days was I lived underneath my desk. Uh, I had a futon that I pulled out. I would go to the corner of Broadway and, and Houston Street to Pineapple Fitness, which had a special at eighteen ninety nine a month to wow. – uh, you know, go there every morning and occasionally shave, but mm -hmm. try and shower. I never used the Schwitz mm -hmm. except for real rare, rare occasion. Right. And I wasn't working out. So I'd go in, I'd be in and out in 10, 15 minutes. It was in the cable building. Yep. And and that was my existence for That's a for great lesson for all you years. broke millennials out there. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the fitness clubs are, you know, they have a lot to yeah. offer. But 
And and I if I look back, I think I would have done let's just say fifty sit ups a day. Just you know, who knows? Maybe right. there could have been a moment where I got some decent apps. But it was about paying dues early on, and that's what was required with the knitting factory. I didn't have a family, you know. I was you know, dating my wife and fooling around, but mm-hmm. it was all, I had no responsibilities. And so I was able to really live on the edge. And the the model was just to put on as great a show as possible every night without any real concern about anything except for paying the rent, right? So it wasn't, a, we weren't trying to make a ton of money. We weren't exploiting and really looking at bottom line too much. It was about existence. Mm-hmm. So yeah, selling CDs in, in Frankfurt on the weekend so was what, about I, existence. I was thinking about that. So what was the cost of the ticket to fly to Frankfurt? How did you... So 300 bucks, right? right to fly round trying to, trip. Trying to figure out the money. You know, there. you used to get two free bags checked. That's true. Right, back right. in the day. So right. it, was, it was 300 And probably bucks. a decent meal both and, ways. And <laughs> probably it yeah. was... I think I flied KLM and Lufthansa, you know, primarily mm-hmm. then. Right. And we would... I would either fly to Amsterdam and, and do a weekend there or do mostly Frankfurt. And we had this deal with the Frankfurter Museum. Mm-hmm. I booked two acts on a Sunday. They would play at 11 and 12, 30 with a short break. They'd get about a thousand people for free to the Sunday morning jazz series. And they were two acts that we would have put out records. So Thomas Chapin did it a lot and the Jazz Passengers and Sonny Chirac. And you know, so it was a nice series. And I would schlep two army bags, basically each one with somewhere between 150 CDs. They cost me about $2.50 at the time to make. Right. Eventually prices got down to about a dollar, but mm-hmm. at the time they were two bucks and I'd sell them for 30 Deutschmarks a piece and I'd sell out every time. And then I'd go to the exchange person at the Frankfurt Museum and I'd get somewhere between five and $8,000 of US dollars and I'd come back on Sunday night, you know, or Monday morning with enough to pay the rent for the month. And I did that essentially two summers in a row. Just yeah, that's, figure. that's what it takes. I mean, you know, people talk about 10,000 hours. You, you, you took a whole new, whole new spin on that. So obviously you love music. Did, do you play? Did you play? No, I suck. I'm a professional <laughs> listener. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, I had two or three friends. Well, all three were friends, but Two were virtuosos. One was really good. It just took them a little harder. And they just were natural. And I'd sit there. I took two years of guitar lessons. I couldn't do it. I just, and my voice isn't really good. It was, it was just none of these things. Hard stuff. I've played piano my whole life and I still have not been able to master more than four or five chords. And, you know, it's, it's not easy. I mean, I've got a piano sitting in my living room that, you know, my kids, Took some lessons, but my secret ambition was to try and sit there and learn to play. And I, I just, it's a combination of time and patience and a willingness to, to know that you saw and just go for those improvements. Right. I just didn't have the patience. And I really wanted some girls, and my friends yeah. were getting girls yeah, being exactly. in the band, yeah. right? So right. I became very quickly their sound guy, mm-hmm. the, you know, even though I didn't have ears necessarily, right. good enough to twist a couple of volume, you right. know, volume switches. I started doing the the lighting, then that turned into management, and then eventually, you know, the record guy putting out the stuff of my friends, and the first label was Flaming Pie Records, and that was four or five different groups from Wisconsin, and we were trying to have this thematic label, and it totally bombed. Who's the most famous musician from Milwaukee? Well, most famous musician from Milwaukee? Well, the Violent Femmes were a very Mm -hmm. successful, famous band. That was going to be my guess. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. You know, Ben Sidron 
is okay. from Madison. He's mm-hmm. well known in other right. other circles for sure. Those would be the two yeah, I, not a big I, music yeah. city specifically. Yeah. You know, didn't have yeah. a real good local scene because Chicago is nearby. And it has a great summer music festival called Summerfest, which is mm-hmm. one of the biggest, oh, actually. amazing, yeah. And, oh, you know, wow. that would have eight or nine different stages, and you'd have polka bands and bizarre, you know, folk things, and Sigmund Snowpack. And right. I mean, I learned about all kinds of these these artists by spending time at Summerfest. Danny Clinch told me, the rock photographer, that that's kind of where he got his idea for the Asbury Park festivals he's been doing the last few years, is is from Summerfest. So a mutual friend of ours, and proud to say my client, because he lets me, Gary Vaynerchuk, said, you're a true hustler, and there's a lot in this changing world that can be learned from you. And after reading the book, I can see how right Gary was. And so I want to talk a little bit about some lessons that you may have for other entrepreneurs based on your more recent city winery experience, certainly the knitting factory. Like I said, you know, people talk about 10,000 hours, but you've really surpassed that. Yeah. You know, I wish I had a bunch of just thesis statements mm-hmm. of where my business sort of thinking is. I mean, there's a few things. I mean, certainly the main thesis of the whole book is that we can't ignore the analog world, even in a, in a digital business. Like right. you, you need to look at the real world, how to reach people, and then how do they experience things, whether it's a coffee cup that I'm looking at right. or, or a book or a hat. Like how do they touch and feel them? Yeah. To me, the iPhone is the greatest example of that, where right. Steve Jobs and all his genius, he had his flaws clearly, but in his genius – Knowing that this phone was going to be so important and the functionality and the user-friendly you know, interface, all the components that we now love about the phone, he knew that it wouldn't do as well if he wasn't able to have people touch and feel it. So part of the incentive of the Apple stores, which became one of the greatest retail achievements of modern capitalism, mm-hmm. has been the fact that he was like, I'm doing this great digital thing with a physical product, but everyone else was going towards doing everything online. And they were online or through other retailers to go, I'm going to create my own physical, beautiful place for people to touch and feel this elegant device. And spend all that time thinking about the relationship between the customer and the wood floor that they put in and that staircase that goes up in every Apple store and like the glass. It was all about how to sell these. But he thought about the experience. And in the same way, for us putting on a show, we need to be fully cognizant of all of the different sensory components that people are experiencing. Even though, yeah, they just paid money to see an artist and maybe they get a drink. But if we can really push on every front from a great wine list to great sight lines to good air conditioning to the right kind of table and chairs and mm-hmm. then the artist great food too most importantly make the artist feel super welcome and home and that starts in the dressing room and what we serve to them and mm-hmm. serve to their friends so that right. their friends are all going we love this place and if there's a lot of love in the air mm-hmm. the artist is going to put on a better show the audience is going to feel that vibe that there's a better show going on and they're going to be sending that love and vibe back to the artist and everyone's going to be really happy and our, if our, if we're doing our job absolutely right People are walking out of there, both the artists and the fan, going, this was one of the great nights, you know, of my life. I mean, I just saw a video of you recently. I can't remember the artist. He was sick. He wasn't able to play, and you brought him chicken soup. Yes. 
<laughs> I loved it. <laughs> um, that was great. a fun video. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, that was definitely my. It's what we try and do, but I'll give that one to Gary Vanerchuk uh-huh. to say, like, look at he's been pushing us all to like sure. have more fun with social and video. Yeah. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to just tape this whole thing. So, yeah. And, yeah, and you know, he, he, I was, when you were talking before about analog, it reminded me, and I think this is Gary's quote. It probably is, but I love it. And I use it all the time. In the age of Jetsons, you still got to go Flintstone. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think Gary, it's in one of Gary's books. And I, I just, I constantly use that because it's just so true. And that's, you know, why, why we got to get out there. One of the things I do tell a lot of college students, which I've been doing a great amount of speaking and I'm enjoying it a lot, I got to say, is when you're thinking about what you want to do or even within what you want to do, the businesses or small aspects within the business, think in Excel, don't think in Word. Like truly don't use Microsoft Word. Start with Excel and you can put a lot in there and just start looking at making sure at the bottom there is a number that's in the black and not in the red. And if you think through the business plan with numbers, then once you get to the point of, okay, it actually does make sense or doesn't make sense. And if it doesn't make sense, hopefully you're not going to take the time to go into Word and PowerPoint or whatever. And, or Keynote is the right. Apple, exactly. you know, which sure. I, I prefer. But yeah. um, I don't want to give Microsoft that much love. Right? <laughs> yeah, no, but, they, it's okay. But yeah. uh, anyway, so, but the idea is enhance it, do your show and tell, elaborate, figure out things, you know, obviously that require words, but- Start with Excel. And, and and to me, I've been very fundamental like that really for 30 years. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit about the Knitting Factory days. First of all, the name, the Knitting Factory, that wasn't the original name, right? You had another name? The original name, well, it can go really back and as long as sure. we're on, you know, talking here. Sure. In a coffee shop, thinking about what to do, I was probably a little, you know, high too when it was illegal, but it was East Village, so it was sort of legal. Yeah. It had the name Expressoism. The idea was, obviously, we'd have a lot of espresso, but also have art on the walls and have art on the stage and be this art cafe live space. That eventually was lost to the name that was on our checkbook, the Fire Escape. The Fire Escape Inc. was the first corporate name I came up with, and and that was because there was a fire escape out our big picture front window looking out over Houston Street. Right. And to me, it made perfect sense. When I started talking to my friends and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to open this new club, you know, where there'll be people tight like sardines in, in a New York City space, it's called the Fire Escape. They're like, that's a pretty bad name, you know, for a New York club where people don't want to think about fires and escaping from fires. Right. And there's been a few unfortunate big fires and clubs in New York, Boston and other. Yeah, that's true. So maybe you should rethink that. So quickly redid and the band I was managing and putting out the record Swamp Thing, we were going to call our second record Mr. Bloodstein's Knitting Factory because Bob, the guitar player in the band, used to work at this sweater factory in Milwaukee, right. which everyone referred to as the Knitting Factory. We ended up calling our record A Cow Comes True, which whatever, maybe is better, maybe not. But then as I'm getting desperate for opening and I don't have a name because Fire Escape was not going right. to work. I asked Jonathan of the leader of the band, the songwriter, would he mind if I borrowed the name Knitting Factory? I'll, I'll buy you dinner at some mm-hmm. point. And he goes, sure, of course, no problem. And name name origins are funny. I was watching the uh, Ken Burns country music documentary a few weeks ago, and I, I love the story about Chris Christopherson, who's working as at a janitor in Nashville for Columbia, and he was writing music, and you know he was kind of keeping to himself the way that the way he was as maybe a nineteen twenty year old. 
And he meets the, the president of the uh, label one day, and they get into a conversation. And he says, you know, you play music. And he goes, yeah, come on and play for me. Play a little bit for me. And he just sat in his office, and he just played a couple of songs and started playing one particular song. But he says, I don't have a name for this song, and he's talking about it. And this is a true story, at least, at least according to Ken Burns. The president of the label looks at Ken Burns, uh, looks at Ken Burns, looks at Chris, Chris Christopherson and says, you know what? I want you to record something. Leave it with my assistant, Mrs. McGee. Her first name is Bobby. And, huh. and let me know, you know, how wow. it goes. And there's me and Bobby, yeah, be, Bobby, well, McGee. And Bobby McGee. Janice wow. Joplin obviously uh, jumped on that even more. But so the origins of these things are, are so much fun. Um, I had a quick yeah. encounter with Chris. I mm-hmm. mean, obviously, we all respect, you know, his talent, sure. actor and singer. His last tour, we were able to get a few dates. And we did, I think it was Nashville to Chicago to New York. And I, I saw him in New York. Mm-hmm. And went on stage and introduced myself sure. and said, Michael Dorf, this is my place. I yeah. you know, love your yeah. work. I mean, homage. Right. You know, exactly. And he goes, um, oh, yeah, yeah, nice to meet you. And I'm like, so how was the show last night? And he's like, where did I play again? And I go, Chicago. He goes, I'm being honest with you. I have no recollection. I can't remember anything except for what I'm doing right now. And when I have the guitar in my hand and I start playing, I can remember the lyrics and, you know, I can play. But ask me where I was yesterday. I truly, I'm telling you, Michael, I don't recall. I don't care. Um, which is kind of like Bradley Cooper's character, which was his character in A Star is Born. It's kind of a lot of the same thing. There might have been different reasons, right. but that's kind of interesting. So... You were so early in the world in streaming, and you were you know, actually sending some of these live sets out to college radio stations and, and, and then starting to, to stream shows. And again, that takes a lot of hoods because at that point, most people thought a stream was just something with fish in it. They, they didn't really know what the hell was going on. Where did that all come from, that, that whole concept of doing that? Well, the, so porno, the porno industry was the early adopter, and we were calling it webcasting right, at right. that point. And the company called Zing, this was before Real Networks came out, right. had the first box. And they were the ones that porno industry was paying cash and just doing whatever they could. Now, everything was on a 14.4 or even worse modem at the time. So there was no stream. A stream is where you're getting a pocket right. of digits coming and you can actually, it looks like video. This was like a really bad herky-jerky set of pictures that was coming. You'd maybe get 10 a minute. Mm -hmm. The music and sound was all broken up. But the idea and the promise that we were a couple of years away from fat internet pipes into everybody's homes in 1997, which was a little bit of a BS that was done by a bunch of the storytellers like Forrester and Mm -hmm. Jupiter and everyone was doing these predictive things. But that's why the dot-com Space blew up and there was this irrational exuberance then because everyone was looking at every household being wired with full bandwidth. So we were all pouring money and mm-hmm. doing things in it. Well, in the infancy, we were like, well, let's if 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 it's so hard to for me to schlep CDs to Frankfurt, but we still have an audience there. In fact, maybe a bigger audience in Germany. Is there any way I could sell? And early on was let's get all those people to listen to a taste of what we're doing and then I'll I'll sell them a CD, I'll ship it to them, you know, via post. Right. But let me at least connect to them in some way online. You know, the whole idea of a digital download was was yeah. was yeah. still too foreign. Yeah. 
still wanted to ship a CD. So that was the idea. Let's let's market to shows. Still at that time, the business was about selling media. The live performance was always still the idea of the taste, the nosh, the mm-hmm. the sampler. Right. The business is completely, you know, flip-flopped. It's a 180 degree difference. Now live performance is the only area you can really make real income. A little bit of publishing, right. but Live performance is the precious commodity. Yeah. The video, the CD today, the downloads, all the music that's made in a studio is all there to to support the live Everything performance. Everything else, right. But in those days, our idea was let's get that live performance out to as many people as we can with the hope of selling them a physical product, a CD. Mm-hmm. That was genius, and you were you were way ahead of your time. So lately, one would think I'm doing a show on music as well as financial education and education in general, which I've been very passionate about. I've served on Westfield, New Jersey's Board of Education two terms, spent five years on the board of Little Kids Rock. Um, Dave Wish was an earlier guest on the show. Great. And great, group. great and, and, and coming up this week on our show is Steve Van Zandt talking about the Rock and Roll Forever Foundation and his Teach Rock curriculum, which this weekend has a, has a gala. And I I bring this up, obviously, as we we both share the same passion here. So two things come to mind, which I'd love to hear the backstory on. The the Carnegie Hall concerts, let's start for Mm -hmm. that, for music education. What got you to create that? I was sitting in a very large boardroom set up at at BMI Music, Mm -hmm. which was hosting the Music for Youth Foundation board meetings. And this was an organization that was essentially established via the UJ Federation, but they had its own 501c3. And the idea was they were going to be the, this group was going to be the recipient of the music visionary luncheon that the UJ hosted every year. And back in the nineties, this luncheon would raise $2 million a lunch. I mean, the record industry used to make a lot of money, right? You know, the honoree one lunch would be David Geffen. The next one was Ahmed Erdogan. And I mean, these were the the big machers oh, yeah. of the business. Oh, absolutely. And everyone spent a lot of money on a table right. and, and ads and donations. So the UJ Federation's deal with Music for Youth was, we want you to be the organization to receive half the money. So this organization never had to do fundraising whatsoever for years. Mm-hmm. I got invited to join the board by Larry Rosen, rest his soul, who you know sadly died a few years ago, brain cancer. But he invited me on and said, you know, we need some young blood. Would love for you to join. And I was honored because I'm sitting around a table with all these machers of the industry, yeah, yeah. mostly record labels, lawyers and publishing, very few people in the live side, mostly that's like, because that's where the money was. Right. And then come, you know, 92, 93 into 94, there was softening in the business. And so this luncheon started making less and less and less money. So now there wasn't this just, yeah. you know, nest egg of cash. And the organization had a meeting one day and said, all right, we got to start thinking about another way to bring in some income because otherwise we're not going to be able to give any money away. And basically they were giving money to about 20 or 30 music education programs, everything from Little Kids Rock to right. Mr. Holland's Opus and sure. a lot of great organizations. Right. But it was essentially just a pass-through mm-hmm. with very little overhead. So it was easy for, for everyone to rationalize. So- Sheepishly, I raised my hand at this meeting. I'd never really spoken. And again, everyone's a big macher at right. this thing. And I I had this idea that 
it would be really cool to do a homage singer songwriter focused rock ish kind of show at Carnegie. They needed to do more of them. Right. My mentor friend George Ween was doing jazz there, but why why not do something like this? So I raised my hand and say, "Why don't we put on a show? We're the music business." <laughs> Here we go. And literally, everyone in the room looks at me, and now like it's my first time raising right, my hand, yeah. and everyone looks at me like. God, you stupid! You're like, <laughs> you realize like how what you, you'll never make money doing right. a you know show. Yeah. You're gonna lose money. It's dangerous. You know, it's dangerous. Right. And I'm like, there's a little bit of chutzpah, no question. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, here's my deal. You guys support it like you do the luncheon, and you know, let's roll out all of your marketing. You know, help me out. I'll take a hundred percent of the risk. If it loses a penny, it's all on me. I'll give a hundred percent of the upside to the organization. What do you guys say? You got nothing to lose. Right. And everyone's like, sure, if you want to be a schmuck yeah, and ahead, do that, go you know, go right ahead. <laughs> and so that was the music of Joni Mitchell. Right. It sold out. Right. We've basically been following the same, you know, economic model the whole time. We make about a hundred thousand dollars net because we're able to ask twenty artists to each do one song of, right. the, of the of the honoree. They get paid a small honorarium. Right. So there's no real artist fee per se that you have to you know take out of the budget. And you're covering different generations with these artists. I think one of the things that was especially so amazing on the Springsteen night, which of course is going to be my favorite, not just Patti Smith being up there and Ronnie Spector, of course, but but you know I think Hold Steady and, uh-huh. and Jesse Malin and the Bacon Brothers, but Kevin Bacon, I yeah. think probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, and then of course Bruce walks out at the end and, and plays Rosalita and, and I'm in the front row. It's one of my favorite videos I've ever taken. But of course it works. And it worked for, uh, you know, so many of the other artists. You know, it- that show fans of yeah. art, fans of whatever artist yeah. it is, anything related to that topic, they're coming. Mm-hmm. You know, and Carnegie Hall, I mean, that's it's such a great <laughs> place, especially half the acts who could sell much bigger rooms as guests doing their one song have never played Carnegie Hall. They've played The Beacon, they've played Madison Square Garden in some cases. And they get nervous on the stage of Carnegie Hall. They're like, oh my God, I'm at Carnegie Hall. So there's a there's an incredible electricity on stage, off stage around doing this. And half the time the honoree doesn't show up. Right. They haven't all come. Yeah. When they do, it's really obviously even more special. But having these songs that you know and love right. interpreted in other great voices. I keep hearing lyrics I never really heard before. Even though I've heard that song sure. a million times on the record, now it's like I'm hearing it done and interpreted in another way. Or in the case of Bob Dylan's tribute, now I can actually hear the lyric well, exactly. and yeah. <laughs> and um, and understand what's being said or what was trying to be communicated. And and so, I, yeah, I think the series works on a whole bunch of levels. It's it's so exciting, and I know that led to some education with Hebrew Tribeca. And the reason I know about that is that I have a lot of family in Israel, and they told me they saw something on Israeli television about it. My brother-in-law said, "Oh, ask him about Hebrew Tribeca," and I looked it up, and I saw there was yeah, it was Tribeca yeah. Hebrew. Uh, but, Hebrew. you know, Hebrew Tribeca, of course, in, in, in Hebrew would right. be yeah, the reverse anyway, so I'm, I'm always <laughs> confused. But, um, you know, I wanted something for my kids that was, I wanted some sort of Jewish education in, in New York City where we are in Tribeca. There was really an Orthodox after school program, which was far from what we were doing. And then this like classic reform track stuff that mm-hmm. also wasn't to me. 
you know, being Jewish is is bagels and locks and New York Times on a Sunday morning. Culture. And, uh, it's the culture. And, yep. and yeah, there are some great fictional stories in the Bible and there's the holidays are great, but there's, could you package it in a way that my kids would actually enjoy, you know, learning? I uh, said that all throughout my yeah. Hebrew education and my kids' Hebrew education. Yeah. I mean, I, in fact, I <laughs> had a conversation with my former rabbi. I was coming back from seeing a Springsteen show in California and he happened to be on the plane and I ran into him and he was trying to understand my whole Springsteen passion. And I was trying to explain to him, I said, if you could somehow take the joy of that room and somehow not necessarily throw it into your high holy day service, but throw it into the education program and get people excited. You've, you've got a win-win. So, you know, well, we, we did that. I brought some great musicians in and the school took off in three essentially seasons. It grew from the original group around my kids and some of their friends about 12. The next year was like 40. And then the third year was 120 students. Wow. So 2004 to 2006, it grew crazy. And in 2006 is when I'm hatching the idea of City Winery. I had to stop being the principal of an after-school sure. Hebrew program, so I kind of handed it over to an organization called JCP. But I have found now the organization called Lab Shul, this guy Amichai Lalavi, that I've been producing their high holidays for a bunch of years. And it is the most spectacular sort of connecting point back to, you know, some cultural Jewish roots, right. but also with a, a touch of tradition, but an understandable level of it. Anyways, I, I've seen it that too grow. We just did Hammerstein Ballroom for the high hol holidays, almost sold out. So, I mean, Lab Shul, it's, it's, a, it's a really cool. Uh, you know, it's so funny because all it needs to take is just go see. And I remember when I first went to, I think it was my, my wife's niece's bat mitzvah in Israel. And that was really my first experience, you know, just outdoors with a guitar player and just, just the most meaningful, you know, afternoon and, and then subsequently weddings and, and, and other things. And it's just amazing what it's taken into. No, you are not listening to a Jewish Torah study on Sunday. This is a show called Financially Speaking, but- But I'll give you the time. My, as Larry King told me, Mitch, this is your show. You do what you want. I would say the tie-in to all this is to my book, to my business, to, to what we're talking about, and to a good sort of spiritual experience. Music helps bring people in and actually make it be sort of the connector so that you can drink more wine. You might get more connected to your inner you know, spirituality, potentially sell more elements in your portfolio sure. by like hosting your your best clients at a Springsteen. Yep. Like music is a great bonder. It's, it's the ultimate bonder. Yeah. Now you said, you've said that every day is a learning lesson and that you could do five hours and I could see that already because we're not going to do five hours folks, but we could. You've turned the negatives into pluses and I know people benefit from hearing these kind of stories. And again, after watching uh, The Irishman, I kind of know what five hours feels like. A great movie, a little, little long. I want to see it. It's terrific. It's terrific. And some surprise cameos I won't give away. My point here is that you sometimes make a mistake, like you passed on Fish yeah, and Harry Connick Jr. Yeah. I think people learn a lot from mistakes. I wish I learned more from the mistakes I've made. And I try, but I think mistakes are important. We had that as a big theme last year where I was basically trying to tell all my managers and staff, you know, if you don't make mistakes, it means you're not trying something different. Mm -hmm. And and the only way to keep pushing and growing and perfecting what you want to do is to try things and they're not all going to work. Exactly. Not every idea is great, 
but throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. Back in the day, early knitting factory, I had this musical integrity that was Meshugana, you know, and I basically told Trey, you know, I'm sorry, but your music is too derivative of the Grateful Dead. I, what we're doing at, at, at the Knitting Factory is much more original, creative, you know, stuff. And he heard that. And actually, you know, we've seen each other post and sure. I became very close with Mike Gordon and they totally respected it. Now, yeah, I feel like a schmuck because, <laughs> you know, they went to Wetlands shortly right. thereafter and was able to, you know, do a lot there. But, um, you know, you make those mistakes. Well, you you always face challenges. I mean, right now, in my opinion, you're about to turn a negative, having to leave your home, really, the city winery home, which we've all been to on Varick Street for many, many years and enjoyed so many shows. But apparently, thanks to Queen Anne or something from the 15th <laughs> century, uh, that's, that's gone. And now you're going to be building the coolest music and luxury experience near Hudson Yards opening in February. So, I mean, things yeah, happen. Okay, you got to... First of all, we had no choice. Like, yeah. you know, I, I could say, oh, yeah, we've turned a negative into a positive, and I'm going to spin that one, you know, <laughs> till my dying day. But we needed to move. I have actually coveted this particular pier for a long time because it's a big, column free, beautiful space, great location. And it has changed hands in terms of who's had control of it for a while. The timing worked out well. I still looked for about 100. At a hundred different spots, I had an investor, you know, who had a, a parking garage actually near here. Mm -hmm. You know, Times Square area was willing to give us the building. It just was you not right for us. Mm -hmm. So, like, we had opportunities. I had to say no to a lot of things that just didn't fit right. This thing feels exactly right, and we're putting a ton of money into it because I think we're going to build. It's going to sound a little audacious, but I think we're going to build the greatest live music room ever in New York. With the same intimacy that you and had at City Winery. Absolutely. It's not about size. Yeah, right. It's about delivering that special experience. So same size as the old in terms of a 350-seat room, a little bit more space between tables and a little bit more room for on the tables. I met so many people, though, that I would have never you're met still, sitting at City Winery. You're still Let me gonna, tell you. You're still going <laughs> to meet them because you're still going to be close, but you might have two inches more. Yeah. But our kitchen is right Next to the main room versus the incredible, you know, wave of a pattern that we had to have people come to get served. This is and this is off topic, but I'm going to ask you anyway because yeah. I just thought it was so interesting because I've been to so many shows and and in this technology era where a lot of people want to you know take video and and a lot of artists are fine yeah. with it and some some aren't and and I experienced one that was really not happy. And it was Patty Smythe, who is probably one of my teenage crushes. So, I mean, you know, I'll, I can never sure. say a negative word about Patty Smythe, but I just thought it was so interesting because she grabbed the guy's phone. I was sitting in the balcony and in the little balcony, whatever you call it there. And, and I just thought it was so cool. She just like grabbed the guy's yeah. phone and start in the middle of goodbye to you. And, and it was just, it was just one of those moments. And I don't know, I just think it's so interesting because, you know, in all these years that you've been in the music business, at the end of your book, you, you talk about the implosion of the record business, making it harder for artists to make a living. And obviously technology couldn't be stopped from the artist and fans perspective you're creating. And here's my Springsteen song of the week, folks, a real human touch and a physical presence. So basically that's kind of a long dance to get to the question with, with technology that you've had at city winery, how do you incorporate what's necessary while at the same time emphasizing the importance of the in-person mm -hmm. connection? So we feel our job 
is to be putting on such an incredible, magical performance setting between great wine. And, you know, we tell people, our candelabras say, please don't talk, respect the artist and your neighbor. And so we want a listening environment where people are focused and connecting to what's happening on the stage. Meanwhile, we know that people have these devices on and a lot of human nature, unfortunately, that's been learned only in the last five, six, seven years. I'm as guilty as ever, but I take this thing and hold it up and and videotape. But you miss the experience. But you 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 do. And and it can be also distracting to your to the neighbor who's behind you, who's seen the face of the right. singer, you know, and then five more of them and it becomes this weird hall of mirrors and all this stuff. So there are places that take away your phone, right? You know, you got to put it right. in a bag exactly. and right. we're not doing that. That's too Gestapo. Like, mm-hmm. right. You know, I also, if someone wants to, you know, th- their kid is on a trip or your mm-hmm. parents are like, you know, older, like you, I-, I want my phone in my pocket. Right. And in fact, I kind of want one or two photos right. of of it. Right. And maybe during intermission, I also want to like catch up on a business thing that I needed to deal right. with. Right. So we're not going to take stuff away. But our job, if we're doing our job correctly, we've created the setting where you don't think about taking the phone out as much. Mm-hmm. Your focus is on the stage. You're sitting right. there smelling the wine and smelling the food mm-hmm. and maybe looking at a neighbor in the eye where you don't even have to say anything, but you're saying that is friggin' amazing what we're seeing on oh, stage. I mean, I'll give you a moment. Nils Lofgren, who's been a favorite of mine for mm-hmm. not just because of Bruce. I was, when I went to school in DC at GW, I would see Nils Lofgren in the seventies and eighties at clubs in DC. And most recently his, one of his shows there, I was sitting there with my friend, Joan Walsh, who's on CNN a lot. And she's a big, big Nils fan and knows Nils and, and his wife, Amy very well. And, we both have been in the pit many times with Bruce taking videos and, 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 you know, know that world, but both of us were just so, just so fascinated being so close to Nils and watching him tell the story of how Southern man was written, I think mm-hmm. that night. And then, and then going into it. And I don't even, if I pulled the phone out, I pulled it out maybe for 15 seconds, but what an amazing experience. And what was even cooler for me personally was at one of the Springsteen shows on the last tour, I think in DC, I was with my son, who's 26 now, is probably 24, and he said, Dad, do me a favor, leave the phone in your pocket. Why don't you just enjoy the show tonight? And boy, that hit me. Yeah. And I was like, wow. I mean, the kid the kid got it, and he was he was so true. No, with all that said, I'm, yeah. we're far from Luddites, right? I mean, yeah. we're using technology to get the word out. We're using technology to create a better seating experience. So, we, you know, we're not using an off-the-shelf ticketing system and gouging people there either. We're trying to create and use technology to enhance the experience. It's a tool. But while you're in the space, we want it to be really a very tactile experience. So out of respect for time, there are two areas I want to get to we can just do quickly because I just think we have to bring both of them up. First, the wine. Where did that come from? Well, I mean- It didn't start with Manischewitz. Well, if you think about it, probably for you and me, it did. Yeah. We were eight days old and somebody stuck a cloth in our mouths Hmm. filled with Manischewitz. Interesting. So we would be a little more sedated while some very private parts were being, you know, (laughs) assaulted. It's not a great day for us. It's not a great day. But that's, (laughs) I've been drinking ever since. Now, I've always had a hankering for wine. I couldn't sell it at the knitting factory if you if I tried, and I did, but it was a beer and, and hard alcohol location. 
an audience and and that's what people wanted. You know, I fell in love with wine and then I fell in love with wine making, you know, right around the time of the Hebrew school, I got mm-hmm. a chance to make a barrel of wine out west. I thought that the experience was so enlightening and interesting and and I truly felt like I drank another layer of Kool-Aid around it. And the authenticity of winemaking, it's so old. It's the original craft beverage, or, you know, mm-hmm. is, and it goes back biblically, right? So I just loved that whole setup. So I really wanted to dive more into it. It didn't work out to move my family out West. So I had to mash it up really with an easier way to bring an audience to drinking it. So programmatically, I thought, all right, an audience like myself, who loves wine, wants to sit and not stand for a show, because now I can have a table to put my glass of wine, is probably going to be an audience that likes Bruce Springsteen Mm -hmm. and likes Patti Smith and Crosby, Stills, and Nash boys. So if I can start programming the singer-songwriter world of people who would appreciate wine, and you can't then just have wine because you want them to sit there and enjoy. Let's also add some great you know, food to it. And so it all became kind of clear to me that, that that's the audience because it's me. Right. And if you don't do something that you think is going to work for yourself, then you know, then you're taking, then you have even more chutzpah because maybe it can work. I knew it would work for me and my friends. So if it works for me and my friends, it's probably going to work for a whole bunch of my friends. And able to get the wine and the grapes or whatever from the east coast to the west to the west, the west coast, coast to the east coast, coast yeah. and then actually make the wine, yeah, you know, and have it there. I mean, all we really did in that yeah. sense, and it was became obvious to me, and I still don't understand why more people don't do it. We inverted the simple model of making wine in the vineyard and then shipping the finished wine to the places people drink, right. New York City and Philadelphia and Boston. And instead, we're just shipping the grapes, whole berry, mm-hmm. and fermenting and aging and making the wine locally. So it's the same shipment from the West Coast. You know, the only difference is instead of it going in a finished bottle, it's now going in a raw, right. you know, scenario. And we actually get to be more environmentally friendly because because we're making it locally, you know, in, in the venues. When the wine is ready, we don't actually have to bottle it all. So wine that is made- Only when Max Weinberg's playing and he puts his face on. Well, we always try and make an artist label. <laughs> yeah, I know. But that's wine that's usually made to, made to age a little bit. The wine that's made to drink right away- that's why screw top works fine because it's made to open and, and you don't need to have it lying on its side with air going through a cork really slowly over a 15-year period to soften the tannins of, of a real big wine. Our wine's made to be very young, approachable, and, and drinkable now. And then we have those other wines on our list, but the 70 to 80% of the wine that we're selling on premise is stuff that never sees a bottle, is made right on site. And it's really delicious. Same formula with the new place opening up? Same. Perfect. The only yeah. slight adjustment with the new place is because we've been able to now get a big upstate New York facility, a 22-acre old knitting factory right. mm-hmm. on Montgomery, in town of Montgomery on the Walkill right. River, we're going to be doing our higher volume production stuff up there and doing much smaller, if you will, besides low volume, but higher quality, small batch, single vineyard wine making at Pier 57. Before I let you go, you, you have a story about one of the greatest of all times. I mean, you've, you know, you've had some of the best artists play in, in your clubs, and you've certainly seen one. But there was one that kind of got away, and that's Prince. 
And I love this story because it kind of hits home for me. I was, I was one of those lucky guys in 1985. I was 25 years old. I was on a business trip working back then in the college credit card world, which I'm a little, mm-hmm. sorry to admit, but somebody tipped me off that I met there that there was going to be this after party show. I think the club was called the Park Savoy, something like that comes to, to mind. And we showed up at 1 a.m. It was a freezing cold night and in walks Prince in full purple regalia. I mean, this is purple rain time. And he got up and played two and a half, three hours that as much as everyone who knows me loves Springsteen, when I get asked the question, the greatest night of music, it is always going to be yeah. that greatest night because it was just unbelievable. But you have you have a story, too. Well, obviously, you didn't make it to our Prince No, I did not. Because, I mean, Prince did a lot I of that. I did. He did a lot of great after party shows. Mm-hmm. And I'll admit, I didn't see them all. But I will, for me, say the one he did two nights at New York on Varick Street, but the second night, the Sunday night, where he played from 3 a.m. till 6, 10 a.m., the light was, the sun was just coming up, was the greatest show I've ever seen. And that was sadly within six, seven months of his death. I know. That's the yeah. thing that makes it even just it's even rougher. Is that. And, you know, he he seems so vivacious. You know, at 6, 10 a.m., I went backstage because it took a lot to get him to sure. end up doing it, which is right. the story. But, you know, I thanked him and I put my arm on his on his shoulder just to, you know, go, hey, man, that, thank you. Oh, my God. Just the most incredible experience. Really, really appreciate it. And I remember noticing how soft his mm. skin was and right. dry it was. And of course, how short Prince right. was. And I'm a short guy. He was really short. And um, I was like, wow, he's so fit, so healthy. That's what I was thinking. I, I had no no yeah, idea. No one did. Well, thank you so much, Michael Dorff, for being on our podcast this week. And folks, we have the links up for you, but the book, which you can order right now, as they used to say, operators are standing by. I used to love that saying. The book's called Indulge Your Senses, Scaling Intimacy in a Digital World. It's published by Post Hill Press. And also check out the City Winery website for all upcoming shows all over America. There's plenty of places you can find it coming back to New York City in February. Any idea of opening night? Uh, I'm sure it'll you're working probably on early. some. We got some great stuff. I yeah. can't uh, say. Of course because, you can. But uh, it'll probably open early March. Mm-hmm. And if you check out, you know, citywinery.com. I mean, we have 12 locations now. It's It's crazy to me. It's time to join the Venophile uh, Club right now, folks. Thanks, everybody, over at Resonate Recording for your great editing work. And remember, when it comes to paying for great live music, and there's nothing better, in my opinion, to save for, pay yourself first. Have a great week, and happy holidays. Happy holidays.